Hello, and welcome to episode 35 of the HP Lovecast podcast. I'm Michelle Brittany, editor of the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space and the book review editor at the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics. I write on all things pop culture with a special emphasis on the horror and spy genres. I am Nicholas Stajak, a pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, industrial music, horror studies, and the editor of The New Peplum from McFarlane. Michelle and I co-edited horror literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarland. With a new year, we are introducing a new theme song entitled Azathoth from Philippe Gerber, released through his John 316 project. Philippe kindly uh, composed this piece specifically for the HP Lovecast podcast, and we are sincerely appreciative of his generosity and support of this show. We'll include the entire song at the end of this podcast, and we'll be using sections of it for our intros and outros going forward. For today's episode, we'll be discussing the novella Eight Cylinders by Jason Parent and published by Crystal Lake Publishing this past autumn. At the end of the episode, we'll share upcoming events. Before Nicholas provides the plot synopsis for Eight Cylinders, I wanted to share a brief bio for Jason Parent. From Jason's website, he shared he is an author of horror, thrillers, mysteries, science fiction, and dark humor, though many of his novels, novellas, and short stories blur the boundaries between these genres. His first novel was What Hides Within, and his police procedural supernatural thriller Seen Evil has been widely applauded. His work has been compared to that of some of his personal favorite authors, such as Chuck Palahniuk, Jack Ketchum, Tess Gerritsen, and Joe Hill. Jason grew up in the Massachusetts area and currently resides in Rhode Island. So, Eight Cylinders, the story focuses on Seb, a mid-range Las Vegas criminal who's gravely injured during a shootout with a mobster after a deal gone bad. Seb flees Vegas in his charger, and after consulting the magic eight ball he plucked from the mobster's eye, drives through the night and through the desert mountains. He awakens to find himself in a small desert camp with his wounds treated. The camp is full of other criminals and narrow duels Earl, Malcolm, Mary, Red, Sly, Helen, Skeeter, and Angelique, who all seem to come from different times and different places. Seb and his companions are all trapped in the camp because giant tentacles shoot out of the mountains that encircle the area and whisk away unlucky persons who wander too far. After Mary falls mysteriously ill and unresponsive, the motley crew band together to use their arsenal of vehicles and weaponry to escape the gigantic mollusk mountain monster and back to civilization. Only Seb, with Mary asleep in his back seat, make it past the titanic tentacles, and after having a showdown of Sly... Freedom doesn't come easy for Seb, though, as though he makes it past the mountains into a gas station, it turns out his adventure of banding people together to escape the monsters of the desert begins anew. All right, so Michelle, your overall first impressions of Eight Cylinders. Um, sure. Um, I thought it was a, a very entertaining story. I enjoyed how fast-paced it was, um, and it was actually a thoroughly uh, fun read for me. Uh, I enjoyed the overt and subtle cinematic nods and references. Um, Definitely got a lot of visual um, cues from other films and stories uh, in this particular novella. Um, I also thoroughly enjoyed the good choice of locales, uh, particularly outside of, you know, it's set outside of Las Vegas, out in the desert. Um, and I thought it was a good use of horror and weird fiction elements. So overall, I thought it was a really fun story. We don't get to read too many uh, fun Lovecraftian stories for this podcast, as many of them do go for the doom and gloom. So this is a big, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Change of pace, change of tone, change of a, a lot of stuff that we're used to. So it's a, a welcome breath of fresh air to, to read something that's well, first and foremost, it's it's an action story, that's for sure. Um, 
I knew I really wanted to read this book when uh, Crystal Lake first uh, published, uh, not published, but promoted it on their Twitter feed. I'd read the little blurbs from uh, Lee Murray and James Chambers, but, you know, basically uh, <clears throat> Lovecraft, Cars, and the Vegas Desert. And uh, although this story is very much into car porn, and I'm not, it's that Vegas desert aspect. Uh, I merely had visions of, like, Fallout New Vegas. Uh, a couple years ago, we did the drive to the first Stoker Con. We went through uh, Barstow and um, the giant uh, thermometer and Baker and stopped at all the spots. And, you know, there's something very, uh, you know, cool about driving through the Mojave, through the desert mountains to Vegas and around Vegas. And we've been recently driving up and down I-10 as well. And you look out in the desert and see the mountains and the sparse vegetation and the rocks. And it's just, like you're saying, it's it's such a, a great great setting you look out there and like what was out there you know there's a lot of history you know people driving from vegas to la you know famous people obviously did that and you know us you know joe schmoes as well but you think of movies like clive barker's lord of illusions where there's cultists out there in the hills or mutants or maybe some sort of noir criminal activity or who knows it just there's so much imagination out in what looks like nothingness and <clears throat> again, when uh, the the novella was first promoted, those are the images that came to my mind. I'm like, oh, we definitely have to read this, and so and I'm glad we did because it, it's it's it has that, and it's a very fast paced, action oriented story, and it's incredibly fun. As you kind of said in your thoughts, and uh, this this book novella is extremely cinematic, uh, be it consciously or unconsciously. Uh, this novella lifts from a lot of other uh, films and also video game, which I'll, I'll bring up here in a second. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a very brisk, fast-paced uh, read. And it's instead of being a, a slow burn horror or cosmic doom and gloom or whatever, this is just out the door, boom, action uh, with uh, gunfights and not car chases, but car kind of chases the desert whatnot so we should probably go through a, a back and forth of some of the movies that this novella uh reminds us of because a, a good way to understand a text is through you know an intertextual way uh uh we can equate this uh novella to some other uh movies out there so what's what's a movie that this uh novella reminds you of um, sure. So I would say one of the first things that I thought of was Tremors. Yes. Um, you know, part of it is, you know, the locale, the fact that it is in the desert. Um, Tremors takes place in a valley situation. And I, the way that uh, Parent uh, describes this locale of where all these, uh, <clears throat> these characters are living um, really did remind me of uh, Tremors and just this desolate area. It's hot, it's dusty. Um, you you just kind of see for miles, you know, desert and then these these huge mountains that kind of surround the area and kind of create this this enclosed environment, this this microcosm. Um, so that would I would say would be one of the first ones. <clears throat> Uh, not only locale, but I would also say in um, the plot this structure is, as well. If you had to sell this movie to a movie studio, that's all you have to say is, this this is a remade Tremors, but replace all the characters of criminals and replace the Graboids with giant tentacles that sprout out of a mountain. And you have this book with... A, a, with a car chase. Although Tremors ends with everyone getting into a big construction tractor and whatever being pushed out of the desert. So, yes, uh, Eight Cylinders is Tremors. And I mean that in the best way because Tremors is awesome. Yeah, and I think uh, Tremors took a very basic plot idea and set it in a locale um, to keep it to a very minimal. I, I, You know, I kind of think of like... The Breakfast Club, you know, where it's set in the classroom and you have six characters that each represent something different and you're able to tell a story. And I think, you know, part of what really worked with Breakfast Club, what works well with Tremors, works really well with the eight cylinders. 
um, having those kind of very basic factors. One of the things that I wanted to say, uh, interject with regards to your intro to this section is the fact that being able to give a reader nuggets of films to reference as they're reading through really helps the story a lot because there's those, oh, I think of this movie and that movie, and it allows the writer um, the opportunity to focus more in on other elements of the storytelling. Well, people talk in normal day-to-day with pop culture references. Mm-hmm. They and sure there's, do. there's no reason that, you know, you can't do that in a book either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> so, uh, Beyond Tremors, what, what was uh, one that you thought of? Uh, well, f- well I know or, we, uh, or in, adi- in addition. Yeah. So, not, not a movie, but a video game, but Fallout New Vegas. I, one of my favorite video games. Um, also, you know, desert Vegas setting. And both Eight Cylinders and Fallout New Vegas begins more or less the same way. Uh, a character is uh, shot and more or less killed by a mobster outside Vegas. They are brought to a small ramshackle area, brought back to life, and their adventure kind of begins from there. Um, uh, so to me, I mean, well, then Fallout New Vegas expands into fighting Caesar's Legion <laughs> and all these other things, giant mutants. In a way, I guess that's not too far off. There's monsters in the uh, Fallout universe. There's monsters here. So I had a big Fallout New Vegas, at least especially in the intro. Um, what's another film? Um, well, uh, not a film, but also a video game, and that is Borderlands. The fact that we're playing Borderlands right now and our characters, they're not on, you know, they're, they're the fringes of society. The, the drug-addled characters in Eight Cylinders are very much like the scavs and whatever in Borderlands that are all tweaked out and skinny and prone to combust. <laughs> yeah, so I mean... You know, it's also a very, de- you know, desert environment. Um, you basically have to make do with the things that you have around you. And that really reminds me of the community um, and the fact that they're using what what they have available to them to create other th- other things. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get to the various cars, but, you know, there's all these cars that are just there in the community that have come there you know, through other people coming through the area somehow. Yeah, if you're into car porn, we're, we're not so much into car porn. We don't, I, I couldn't tell you anything about hot rods or, you know, the difference between a, a Charger and a DeLorean. But oh, if, you, if you're into car stuff, this is definitely another tick in the box of, of yeah, this is a great movie. And, and because the, the, this uh, novella is very car-centric, it also has the feeling of movies like, uh, Mad Max Fury Road, uh, you know, driving through a desert on a high-speed pursuit. Um, the Fast and the Furious and Transporter films as well, because mm-hmm. they're all very car-centric. They're, you know, with criminals that are kind of banded together to do capers or heists or whatever. So this book, uh, novella, also draws heavily from these very car-centric action films. Now, to be fair, Nick, you don't drive, so you're not going to... <laughs> so, but it, you wouldn't necessarily know the various cars, but, you know, when a parent brings up a Dodge Charger, for instance, that's Seb's uh, car. I mean, even if you don't drive one, you've seen them out on the road, you just don't necessarily look at what a what each car is. No, but I, I can also kind of respect when you, you have a mm-hmm. kind of an iconic car. I know, like... In Supernatural, they have their car, and that's supposed to be an iconic car for that series. And Phantasm with the Himakuta, you know, I know it's an iconic car for that horror series. So I, I know, I know, I may not know enough about cars or how to drive them. Uh, don't hold that against me. But I do know when they're super important and when people mm-hmm. really gravitate toward, especially a horror film that has, you know, uh, a car feeling to it. I'm pretty sure the folks that like films like Maximum Overdrive and Christine you know, ha- juggle that, ooh, ah, you know, horror story and cars and a whole bunch of other kind of mm-hmm. fun stuff. Yeah, and I think a Dodge Char- Charger <laughs> has has really made an entrance into not only our our freeways, but, you know, they, they are very popular, and they're, I think they're making quite an impact uh, 
in a, in a pop culture sense too, because they're a distinctive looking car. Um, so it's, you know, it, it was a good choice, particularly with what Seb needs to do uh, towards the climactic end of the of the story. So uh, another movie to pop out there, especially if you're looking at a small cast that has specialized skills, they all have to kind of come together. Is Cube. Uh, it was an indie horror film in the late 90s with a couple sequels, but that's all about criminals that are put into a giant cube that, you know, the rooms shift around, but they all have some sort of ability that they have to use to try to escape from the cube um, as, a, as another cinematic kind of equivalent here. Okay, so um, kind of along that lines of, of that vibe, I would say um, I really read uh, or kind of thought about from dusk till dawn mm -hmm. and um you know the shootout at the beginning uh as well as the the the, the two characters being trapped in the bar criminals and, in a weird western vibe exactly mm -hmm. so um that's that's a film that i definitely the vibe i picked up mm -hmm. on reading this what the, about you the mist would also be another one i'm not the biggest fan of the mist i I'm one of the few people who hates the ending with a passion. But it's one of those, again, band of people who maybe not get along. They're trapped in a supermarket. But this one is more of a, if you leave the perimeter of the supermarket, you're basically insta-dead. And that's kind of what happens in this camp in Eight Cylinder. Is this, this camp is a very finite area. And as soon as you kind of go away too far, you're basically insta-dead. The giant tentacle monsters or something else are, are going to get you. It also makes me think of some video games out there where if you stray too far from the beaten path, you know, there's there'll be some obstacle that insta-kills you, be it a pit of lava or water or just whatever. But... Or, or the cliff edge without the, the invisible boundary, and you're like, hey, I'm going gonna, gonna to go check this out. Oops, I just went over the cliff. But very much a, uh, a vibe from the mist in this uh, story as well. Now, I would, now, I'm not one of the few that hate that, that movie, by the way. <laughs> I actually very much enjoyed it and thought the, the ending was The ending, ending was terrible, but, but what makes the movie, uh, side tangent... What makes the movie good but bad is that woman, that preacher, crazy woman. Ooh, she's so believable, and you just, oh, man, she's so evil, and it just makes you cringe. And you, hard to watch film because she does such a... that I don't remember the actress, but I know she played the Borg Queen. And so to me, she's always the Borg Queen, but man, she's too good in the mist. She's, mm -hmm. she's too good that I can't watch it again because she's <laughs> so evil. Oh my goodness. Um, okay, so for another kind of uh, Western and the whole big shootout against all odds, I'll be honest, I went went back to a classic, which is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, mm -hmm. um, with the opening um, shootout between uh, Seb and Carlo against uh, Charlie Ling and his, uh, I think he had like seven men with him. And, you know, it's uh, your, your two heroes, their, their backs are against the wall, and, and what are they going to do? They're going to do a Hail Mary to try to get out of there. And, um, you know, that's actually the start of, start of our story. And um, so that was a movie that I thought of. What about you? Last Action Hero. It's a, a movie that doesn't get enough credit out there, but uh, that's Last Action Hero is kind of a spoof and a parody of other Arnold Schwarzenegger films in the whole action genre anyway. But what, what stands out in that film is the main villain has a false eye that he changes to different things. I think even at one point it might be in Magic 8-Ball, but it's like a bullseye and other things. And so this coincidental that the main villain in Last Action Hero has... A false eye that he changes. And I swear one of them is a magic eight ball. I just haven't seen that movie in a long time. But the the first villain in Eight Cylinders has a magic eight ball eye that gets plucked out. It's it, Of course, this all happens before the, the story starts. So you can only imagine, you know, like, plink, you know, plucking the eye out. And then, you know, the character actually consults the magic eight ball. And let's just be honest. I think it leads him astray. I... I know we got a couple more movies to go through here, but if you really think about it, if you didn't consult that magic eight ball, we wouldn't have a story. Why would you consult the magic powers of a magic eight ball from a Vegas mafia person? Don't you think that it's not 
going to be that honest with you. <laughs> it's not It's not going to help you out here. That's a guy's eye. You think it's going, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, take me to casino. We're going to win some money. I'll be your lucky charm. No, that's a, a villain mafia's eye you have there. It's That's, that's not a good luck charm. <laughs> I guess it might be a good trophy, but. Yeah, it does kind of lead you to wonder, huh, you know, here's here's a guy who is a small-time criminal and he's done okay for himself. He hasn't been seemed like in too much trouble and yet for whatever reason he decides to consult the eight ball um, <laughs> consistently. Um, and you know, it seems like it gets him out of out of a tough spot, but does it really? You know, uh, I think we'll we'll find out that you know the eight ball had its own its own agenda uh, as well. So um, I've got one more movie to bring up, and I've, I think you I've, do too. I've got a few, okay. But um, uh, so let me bring up um, one of the things that I'm always fascinated by, mm-hmm. um, and it's something that uh, Parent did in this book is the dining room when all the characters collect around the dining room and you kind of get an introduction to them and we see this happen in alien event horizon um i think uh sunshine also does this and a parent did that and so you know we get introduced to these uh motley crew of individuals at the dining room table and um, so I, I know there, there is a paper in there somewhere. And um, here is just yet another example of dining room introductions. I, I think there might be a similar scene in Texas Chainsaw Massacre as well. Okay. I haven't seen it. So um, maybe I might have to put that on my list. Um, let's see. I also have... Um, and I know we'll talk about this later, but so I'll just mention for now. Um, the character Mary reminded me an awful lot of Riju, I think. is Ringu. That Ringu. Ring. Or um, the other one that you said. Was it Grudge. the Grunge? Grudge. Um, and that's going to have some bearing in our discussion uh, as we talk about the people themselves and... Uh, just where they're at in the plane of existence. So I'll leave it at that, and we'll come back to that topic in a little bit. Um, Yeah, I have one last thing, and that is the narrative structure of a repetitive story. And um, I thought of Groundhog Day uh, in a horror motif. What was your, your last one? Also kind of repetitive, but Army of Darkness and Evil Dead 2. Mm-hmm. Evil Dead 2 where the hero, you know, even though he succeeds at everything, at the end of the movie, he's cast into another situation where he's got to save the day again from a new menace. And, and in the case of Evil Dead 2, you know, he survives the uh, deadites in the cabin only to wake up in Arthurian times and have to fight the deadites there. But then the sequel to that, Army of Darkness, uh, the character of Ash changes a bit where he's kind of more of a, he's an, an unre... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? You know, a, a unlucky hero or, uh, you know, a hero that's not supposed to be a hero, but he's, supposed mm-hmm. to, he's cast into the hero world, and I don't know why I'm failing on that word. But that's what the character Seb is. He's a lot like the uh, Ash from Army of Darkness. He's a, a hero that doesn't want to be a hero, but he's kind of forced to be a hero. Anti-hero? Not an anti-hero, but, uh, but along those lines. Mm-hmm. So very Army of Darkness, Evil Dead 2 vibes as well. Um, but yeah, so a lot of cinematic stuff going on condensed into this, uh, to this novella. Um, I do think I recall, uh, I think that, uh, Parent did an interview, I think with, uh, Crystal Lake Publishing, and I think he mentioned about the fact that he was, one of his hopes is that one of his stories will get made into a movie, and I'll be honest, I haven't read any of his other work, but I would say, yeah. I would definitely love to see this in a movie format. Tremors! Yeah, I would love to see an updated version. Uh, I would. I want to see this version yeah. in in film. So moving along to kind of understanding this novella as you know a movie, let's talk about Seb, our our main character here, who's 
who's a who's a cool character. I think he's kind of cool. He's an African American character, so it's nice to have some diversity where we have a Lovecraftian esque story with a, a black person in the the main role, which is uh, which nicely coincides with you know the HBO adaptations of uh, of Lovecraft Country that's that basically came out roughly the same time. So o- always good to see that. But my 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 question here though is is Seb's a criminal. Um, but is he, is he really a good guy? Is he really a bad guy? Is he really a hero? Is he not a hero? Cause I did go online. I did see some other reviews that, you know, that they do cast Seb as, well, he's a criminal. He's pretty selfish. Uh, you know, uh, he's a bad guy. I mean, he's a bad, good guy or an anti-hero or, you know, uh, a type of character you would see in a, a Quentin Tarantino film, uh, I think is maybe what they're going for. So I guess the question is, is, is Seb really like that? Is he is he basically a, a bad person that has to become a hero or not? I think he's actually a good person for the most part. And he's portrayed as a well-mannered individual. Like he mentions that he would never hit, hit a woman. Like, you know, he's frustrated. But he, he says that, you know, he, he wouldn't hit Helen when he's trying to figure out what's going going on. So instead, he uses his words to say, you know, I start talking now. So, yeah, he's kind of, you know... Well, he's trying to play the tough guy in that part, but, you know, that's he's just digging into his repertoire as a criminal do this. But, again, just because you're a criminal doesn't necessarily mean you're an anti-hero or a bad guy or, or whatever. But, like you said, yeah, he's got he's got a personal code of conduct. He doesn't hit women. Right, um, and he also doesn't do drugs, which is what got him into trouble uh, initially. Uh, he and Carlo um, are in the shootout because, you know, they're there to just fence some jewelry and things like that. And it's Charlie Ling that, that uh, instead of bringing the money, he brings cocaine to the deal and figures that he'll just trade cocaine with... with uh, Seb and Carlo. Trade not accepted. Yeah, and basically Seb, you know, who says, you know, the metric system, he's he doesn't really understand, so the last thing he wants to do is, you know, conduct a trade in uh in a, a or barter with a a value that he doesn't understand. So, to me I'm like there there are definitely aspects of him that that he won't cross that line and i think because he won't cross that line you know hit women or um you know deal in drugs or take drugs you know allow him to remain somebody that the reader can um identify with to some degree uh see him as a hero see him as a as the leader that he needs to become. Well, his, his attitudes are also very selfless. He's always thinking about his girlfriend, trying to get back to her to help her out. He thinks about his deceased friend. He actually puts a lot of people before him. And those aren't attributes of someone who is mostly a nefarious person. They're mostly egotistical or narcissistic or they think about only themselves and their own survival there's like one scene in here where seb's like all right i'm getting out of here screw you guys and and that fizzles within mere seconds and he kind of just you know i kind of see that as just like a a point of him trying to do some bravado but failing because that's just not in his nature i guess you know there's a reason why you know i I see him as either a lowly or mid-range criminal instead of a high level criminal you know this isn't like his real life here yeah, I mean, sure, he's driving around a stolen charger, and yeah, he deals like he's a thief and stuff, but, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, maybe in a Pulp Fiction vibe or something like that. So he's, he's at least likable, relatable, and he has principles and some sort of nobility to him that I don't think he's he's the bad guy that I think that other reviews are trying to paint him to be. Now, it could be that he is supposed to be that way. There is that that hint that maybe he was written to be like a Vin Diesel Riddick character where he's dark and brooding and yeah, he's saving other people, but he's only doing it to save himself. And he's, you know, he's Riddick. Riddick is, we we think cinematically Riddick is cool. I mean, come on, Vin Diesel's awesome. The Riddick movies rule, but would you want to be friends with him? 
Now, he will slit your throat at a moment's notice <laughs> to if he'll advance himself. You know, he's a true, you know, kind of villainous, I'm going to put that in air quotes, anti-hero that's a criminal, but, you know, he still saves the day at the end. And if a parent was trying to get that with Seb's character, I think he faltered. Uh, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, you know, just because someone's a criminal doesn't necessarily mean a bad guy. And I think it kind of ties into some of the other um, uh, readings of this uh, story, like uh, between Lee Murray and James Chambers, who've both left uh, blurbs or, you know, quotes for this, you know, they equate it to a redemption tale. I'm like, what's there to redeem, though? You know, Seb, yeah, he's been a criminal and stuff, but you know, does he really need this much redemption to, you know, do what he needs to do? I, I don't feel that. You know, if if it was a Riddick character, then yes, oh yeah, you got a lot of stuff to atone for. I don't see that Seb needs to atone for a lot. Hence why I don't think he's that bad of a character. When I say bad, I mean bad guy. Yeah, I would agree with that because, um, and I would go so far as to say, like his you know, see you later, adios type of uh, moment where he decides, okay, I'm just getting out of here. These people are weird. Um, I don't want to be here. I need to get back to my girlfriend. Um, he takes off. I don't even really see that as a bravado stance or anything like that. That's just him wanting to get back to his girl. He is actually truly afraid that Charlie Ling is going to get to her and make her life miserable, probably hurt her. And so to me, that's just one more thing that attributes Seb as truly, uh, yes, outwardly his, his action, he's a bad guy, but his heart, he's a good guy. And, and his uh, internal dialogue and thoughts support th- that. Yes, uh, yes, definitely. Um, if anything... Where he does seem to falter and where I think uh, he does probably need some redemption. And, and I again, I think this is kind of a self-examination um, that, we, that we also see with Helen. But he has, Seb has visions of Carlos. And the fact that he, he won, made a choice that they were going to take an action. And it was a bad call. Um, and it cost his friend his life. So, you know, he's dealing with that guilt. Um, they, they have been friends for a very long time. So he does feel like he does feel for Emma, um, not Emma, Gemma, his girlfriend, as well as the people in the camp. He feels a sense of obligation and responsibility. And so, you know, if anything, he probably feels that sense of obligation and maybe there, he feels a sense that he needs to redeem himself because of that death. Um, but where there's a problem is the Magic 8-Ball. Why would he depend on what the Magic 8-Ball is going to say? To the point of like, in the middle of gunfire, he's over there shaking the 8-Ball, trying to figure out, Am I gonna, is this a good decision? And the 8-Balls don't know. this is not a good decision type of thing so why would you depend on an eight ball when you've had a friend that you've been with for you know two decades working with and yet you depend on some magic little you know piece of junk you know uh to decide your destiny i i see that as a as a total film scene, like you would see, I would see something like that in a buddy cop type film. I could mm-hmm. see Danny Glover and Mel Gibson hiding behind a car and Mel Gibson pulling out a magic eight ball and shaking it and, and Danny Glover going, what the hell are you doing? Mm-hmm. Consulting the magic eight ball. So I, I, I see it. I don't fault that per se, but yeah, the actions do lead to, you know, uh, you know, him dying. <laughs> Don't, as we said earlier, why are you consulting the magic eight ball from a mafioso's eyeball? Um, I, I guess a bigger question would be, this is probably, if, if there's anything really overtly uh, lacking in eight cylinder, especially in response to Seb, it's not that he's, you know, bad slash good guy is, is he needed at all? And I think this is probably where the story falters because the question comes, okay, Seb is now in this camp with all these other people. They've got guns, they've got cars, there's giant tentacle monsters around and they want to escape. What does Seb contribute 
now that wasn't there before. Because the story makes allusions to people have tried to escape in the past. They've all been together in the past. You know, people have died. They just kind of gave up. So what 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 does Seb bring that wasn't there before? And when I try to answer that question, I come up empty-handed because... <clears throat> He really isn't that much different than the other characters. The other characters are all criminals. Some of them are probably more skeevy than others, you know, meth doubt or whatever. Uh, some are probably more capable than others. Uh, I don't. I, I see Seb. You know, after a day being there, he's all of a sudden in a leadership position, and I, I kind of understand that. You know, this is movie logic. You know, the character does this because the movie says so, but. At the same time, when you sit back and actually try to think about it, what does Seb bring to the table to get them all out of there that wasn't there before, other than just being another butt in the seat to be a decoy for the, the monsters out there? What is his unique factor? And that's a great question, um, because there do really doesn't seem to be anything that would lead you to think that there's anything unique about him. Um, other than his drive for wanting to get out of there because he wants to get back to his to his girlfriend, um, he he seems to keep over a day. He continues to be hopeful that he's going to be able to get out of there. While I would say that the others have lost that sense of hope. So if there's one catalyst, maybe he brings hope to this community. Um, but that does seem kind of like a pretty or fairly weak uh, connection um, that probably needed to be more greatly explored. Um, this is a novella, but I do think Parent, if, if he had even spent like a little more time with passage of time uh, for, uh, for uh, Seb being in the community before becoming a leader, if there had been some sort of thing scene that would have provided a transition that would have would have brought him into a leadership role I think that that would have helped the story but the fact that we are in that in that moment kind of jumping the shark a little bit in our trying to um, suspend our disbelief um, I think that that's where there there's a gap because honestly the scene that creates or pushes Seb as the leader is really kind of a anticlimactic. The event has already occurred, and the strength actually came from Angelique when she kills Sly for coming after her and Mary. Seb is just there after the fact, and the only thing he brings is that he knows how to sneak into the room, <laughs> but the guy's already dead. So why everybody turned to him, other than the fact that he had two guns, which he later finds out there's a whole arsenal of all sorts of weapons there, which also gives you pause. Why didn't they all try to escape before if they have grenades, all these cars, and everything else? He is only one more person. Um, but, but that charger, man, maybe... Maybe it's the charger. Maybe it's the charger. He, he's just there to deliver that charger. It's a cool charger, they, and they soup it up. Oh, yeah, another connection, Army of Darkness. They, they take uh, Ash's crap car and make it into a giant armored helicopter thing that mows down skeletons. That kind of happens here. I mean, modifying cars to do stuff. Anyway, I got, that's got nothing. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a, a weak part, I, and I get it. Again, this is, this is a filmic novella. He's the hero because he's the hero. And, you know, um, and it's fine. We, we like Seb. He, he's, I think he's heroic. Uh, and I'm glad that he more or less saves the day through a, a nice, uh, climactic, Mad Max-esque drive through the desert with big old tentacles slapping down on top of him, sending tendrils after him. It's exciting. There's no time to stop and think about this stuff. You gotta drive, drive, drive. And it works, and I like it. <laughs> so, so on the subject of tone, um, after uh, reading Wonder and Glory Forever, the uh, edited uh, Nick Mamatas uh, anthology, 
one of the the questions that that anthology kind of brought up was, you know, a lot of Lovecraftian fiction out there kind of dives into the the awe aspect. You know, this is this is the universe and all of its awesomeness. This is something that we as humans can't comprehend, or we only get a sliver of it. You know, of seeing something grander than us. And you know, and it's actually a really excellent thing to to think about. And it's a pretty excellent, I think, criteria to look at Lovecraft derivative work. Is does it contain an element of awesomeness or not? And not every story needs to have an element of awesomeness. Some stories don't require it at all. But those that do, you know, what do they do to accomplish that? Um, so I guess one of the questions is 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 Eight Cylinders an awe inspiring uh, Lovecraft story? No. No. <laughs> no. Nope. No, it's not. And, and it's okay that it's uh, not. Um, well, and I think that, you know, given what Parent was trying to do with this story, mm-hmm. I think to create a, a sense of awe in this story would have been um, a, a misdirect with mm-hmm. this story. Um, because this really is a down-and-dirty horror adventure story it's a that creature re- feature. It, it is. And it relies on a fast pace and the immediate ability of the reader to really relate to the characters and the narrative. So, you know, he, ke- Parent keeps to that more immediate sense and that immense sense of dread. You know, Seb looks at the mountains and he looks in the inky water and he just senses there's something not right here. And it works. And, and given, um, as Nick says, um, you know, this is a monster of the week type of story. So it's all on, you know, creating that sense of dread, doom, gloom, um, you know, where we are looking death in the face when we see this monster because it is so terrible and it is just, we, we are, we're going to die, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe we might have a sliver of a chance of a hope if we all band together to fight this monster. Monster of the Week. And because it's a Monster Week, and the way that the story is told, it's it's told pretty much as magical as it is because they're all kind of confined to the space and people come from different you know, time periods, from different whatevers. So there is that kind of, I'm just going to say magical aspect of it, maybe a different dimensional aspect of it, but it's still grounded in, I'd say, a reality. You know, it's still a desert, it's still a dirt. They're eating snake steaks covered in maggots or whatever. And grub. And gr- grubs. You know, the mountains still look like mountains. And even though that the mountains have giant tentacle monsters in it, it's still, like, you know, comprehensible. Um, you know, just when you witness them, you know, you're witnessing, yeah, a monster, the same way that you would probably witness a dinosaur. You might be like, oh, or terrified, but not necessarily awestruck. And again, this is, I don't think this is a, a Lovecraftian story that, like you're saying, needs to be an awe-inspiring story. It's too fast-paced. This is an action story, first and foremost. It's, it's, the, the very first half is getting the crew together. The last half is escaping the monster, uh, Mad Max uh, Fury Road style. If anything, it has more in common with a caper film or so on and so forth. Um, so just because it's not awe-inspiring, it just lacks that one element of a Lovecraft story. It capitalizes on a whole bunch of other Lovecraft stories. Uh, you know, the... The character Sly refers to the mountains as the mountains of madness. The, obviously, the tentacle monster. Uh, I say monsters. We don't know. All we know is there's a mountain, and the tentacles shoot out and slap down and grab people. It could be one critter. It could be multiple. It could be a desert Cthulhu. I mean, why not? You know, there's a Cthulhu underwater in the Pacific. Why couldn't there be a Cthulhu, you know, in the desert just chilling under a mountain, and he's just slapping things out there? It sounds kind of silly, but... Why not? <laughs> you know. Well, and and parent does spend a little bit of time um, describing the monster's mouth, mm-hmm. um, the beak, the, the stalagmites uh, that are look like people hanging from this creature's mouth. Um, it it is pretty. It's a horrifying description. You, you know, sign up because I now. I totally forgot about this, and yeah, the beak with all the stuff hanging out. You know what it mm-hmm. makes me think of? We just watched two nights ago uh, underwater, you know, and you've got the giant Cthulhu in there, but you also have all the little 
baby monster whatever and they're hanging from the roofs and stuff like that and it's really from his i think from his beard something yeah it's 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 creepy it's gross it's awesome yeah so so the giant tentacle monster is in the mountain so which leads me to think setting setting is super important uh for eight cylinders and when we opened up this podcast that's one of the things i i what drew me to this novella was it's vegas even though vegas is only like the first chapter but i i think vegas still permeates outside that's just that vegas attitude but that whole high desert mountains and all that other stuff that setting is super important into this story especially a setting where the characters can't go anywhere and they're trying to get out um it also sends a message that not every lovecraft story needs to have the oceanic new england township type setting not everything needs to be in an arkham or an innsmouth or something like that but with the setting the setting is also kind of ambiguous and i'll just throw this out there it leads to the question that needs to be asked is are these characters actually already dead are they in some sort of purgatory and this purgatory is represented by this camp in the middle of the desert surrounded by mountains and in order for them to progress past this purgatory they've got to escape by doing good deeds banding together and escaping the giant tentacle monster um and, and, and the story basically hints at that. The pull quotes from Lee Murray and James Chambers allude to that. Uh, Lee Murray calls a, you know, ref- references Dante's Inferno. James Chambers uh, references this as a redemption story, an idea you have to redeem yourself to, you know, ascend to a higher plane or whatever. So I guess the question is, is are these characters already dead? Yes, I actually think that they are probably ghosts. They're ghosts. Okay, Michelle Michelle thinks they're ghosts, and I 95% agree with that, so yeah. go for it. So, and the reason why I come to that, um, in part through um, thinking about Sly and Helen, who seem to be resurrected without any sort of explanation, um, because we see that Sly is dead. He's killed by Angelique. He kills Helen by stabbing her in the stomach. Um, she goes down. Seb sees this. And yet some, some moments later, as they're trying to go through the mountain, um, both Sly and Helen make appearance. And Helen sacrifices herself uh, for Seb and the group so that way they can try and get through the mountain. And uh, Sly, uh, ever the, the villain... Um, is actually trying to foil everybody. Um, but in the end, um, he also gets killed again <laughs> by the monster. Now, the Earl and all the people there in the community don't seem to know how they got there, um, and they really don't seem to have a sense of time, or alternatively, time no longer is of an importance as it is to people living it's like at the end of chrono trigger and you're at the end of time and all the characters are just kind of hanging out there it's a very timeless place this area is yeah and i mean you really do get that sense with earl malcolm and all the rest that that that's where they're at um they also through helen she seems to do the most reflecting about her past. Um, Malcolm is the strong, t- silent type, so we don't really hear much from him, but he is kind of a brooding, uh, introverted individual who does seem to have some sort of emotion about what he's done in the past. We just are not privy to what that is. So Helen really is our gateway to the potential that these are ghosts. She seems to hold on the most of feeling that that she needs to redeem herself because of what she's done um, in the past. And I just, you know, when we're talking about referencing in our minds other films and stories, I really gravitated towards a, a film it's from the late 80s. I, I checked it before we started this, but it's called Ghost Town. Yes! 
um, directed by Richard uh, Governor, and it was um, from 1988. It was filmed in the desert, and basically a sheriff is trying to find a woman who went missing in the desert. And what transpires is that she's been been pulled in or sucked into a basically another time, um, not necessarily back to the 1880s Wild West, but the characters are kind of all from that time. Um, so to me, uh, they're all ghosts. And I do think that they are, are ghosts. Now, where I'm still kind of like on the fence is whether Seb is actually dead because he does have visions of uh, Carlo and um, has kind of like quick conversations with him. Um, so I'm not sure if Seb is dead or if he is dead and hasn't had that epiphany, that realization. And to me, that makes me think of Carnival of Souls and the woman who, you know, is kind of continuing on her life after um, a bridge accident. She doesn't even remember the bridge accident. And it isn't until they, you know, going to spoil it here for you if you haven't seen it, but it isn't until the car is pulled out of the water that we find out that she's actually been dead through the entire story. See, I, hold on. I, I have to give you props that you went the Carnival of Souls route rather than the Sixth Sense route. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Just because I, I have a soft spot as Carnival of Souls is a superior movie, but yeah, they're very much both the, the main character is a ghost, but they don't know it. Yeah, so that's why I think they're ghosts. And I think that, that they're in some sort of, I will give you, I think they're in some sort of purgatory. Um, and so they're not alive. They're not, they haven't gotten to their final destination of death, but they're not alive. So, I, I just don't think that they are. I, I agree with 95% of it because it makes the most sense, but I don't like it, and I'll tell you why. Now, one, I, I it makes the most sense. I actually think what you're saying, take, taking the Carnival of Souls slash uh, Sixth Sense route, that Seb probably died in that shootout. He's probably already dead when he gets in that car, consults the Magic 8-Ball, which leads him through the mountains to the camp, and... He's there with all the other dead folk, and you know they're they're basically caught between a heaven and a hell, or you know whatever. I've not read Dante's Inferno, but you know, uh, be, be, you know, they, and if they if they're able to successfully get out of there, there's that chance that they might ascend to heaven, or if they are permanently killed there, they might go to limbo or something else. Now we do know that at the story's end, that Seb does get out of there, and he finds himself in the same predicament a second time. Hence the Evil Dead 2 ending here, slash Army of Darkness, slash, I'm going to throw out there, Quantum Leap, uh, because I think he's being pulled here to do good things. The reason I don't like this explanation, even though it makes the most sense, is something we talked about earlier, and it goes back to, does is Seb a good guy or a bad guy? Does he actually need redemption? And my answer to that is no. He doesn't need redemption because, again, the way he's portrayed his inner dialogue and his actions... Even though, he, again, he's stolen a charger and he's committed some, you know, some crimes, but, you know, I never get the impression that he's killed a lot of people. I, I have a feeling he's probably never even killed anyone, period, to be honest. Uh, you know, if his big crime really is stealing a charger two weeks ago, because he's only had it for, you know, a short amount of time, and dealing in small-time drugs, he won't even touch drugs and stuff like that. I, I don't know on the grand cosmic scale how dire of offenses these are that he has to be put into this redeemable setting for it i just don't see it and if the characters are already dead you're kind of left at that question of does it matter because you're dead well once you're dead you, you cease to have an impact on reality now unless this was like a ghost story where the ghosts are actually mingling with live people but that's not what the story is they're all trapped here they're all together so if they're dead it doesn't matter. You're dead. <laughs> you know, the in real life, when you die, guess what? Taxes don't matter. You don't care about, you know, paying bills. You don't care about, you know, did I step in poop the last week? Because you're dead. <laughs> and so that's, that's kind of the challenge I have with this is if they're dead, it doesn't matter. 
uh, if they're alive, then things do matter because Seb has to get out of here to save his girlfriend. Seb's got to get out of here to to do some other things. And it, it seems to me that the, the drive there's better drive there, better narrative consequences of of drive of trying to do stuff if the characters are alive. If they're dead, the only thing they could do is, I guess, go to a heaven or a hell. And I guess uh, from a theological perspective, that's a, a very important thing. I have no interest in it. Um, so that that's that's my struggle with this. If Seb was actually a more nefarious character that we know he's done bad stuff, now this is a true redemption story, then the purgatory angle makes more sense. He's got to save his soul is what it would come down to. He, in order for him to go to heaven or paradise, Elysium, whatever, he's got to save his soul. How is he going to save his soul? He's going to rally his people and get him out of this mountain and save the day. And if so, if this is a soul-saving story, I, I get that. But I just don't see Seb needing to have his soul saved, if that makes sense. So that's why I don't... I, I agree that the purgatory angle explains everything, but there's that missing piece there of Seb's character and his intentions and what he is that, that to me, deflates it a bit. Well, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that I think that that depends on your religious beliefs. And Helen apparently has a rosary, so um, I'm going to make an assumption that she is a Catholic and that um, she is the one that seems to relate the most to her guilt and her need to redeem herself. Seb is, I'm going to say, is probably not a religious person, so he's probably the the rationale of his thought is that he has guilt in his heart and in his mind so even though he may not have there may not really be a reason for him to be there the fact that he's stolen he has killed because he at least killed a couple of of charlie ling's people um you know he's done bad things so he is he has sinned and so there is a reason for him to be there if you take a theological stance. But in a more general, lighthearted, you know, position and with this regards is, this is to a the lighthearted story. This with, is a lighthearted yes, story. with regards to the story and the fact that it is, you know, a horror adventure, fast paced, you know, in and out type of story. Yeah, I mean, are we then going too far reading too much into it by talking the theological? But I think that. It does exist if that's what the direction that people want to take with the story. And if that's the case, I would say, yes, by all means, he does belong there because of if you read the Bible and, you know, he, he has, you know, committed sin against the Ten Commandments and against others. And so, yes, he does belong there and he does have to redeem himself. See, I'm going to take the quantum leap approach. <laughs> This is the only way I can make it work for me that make it not purgatory and not theological is that magic mystical forces that can't be explained have put Seb there to help get people out and he winds up getting one people out. Now at the end of the story, he's in the same position. He's basically quantum leaping from situation to situation. That's that's the only thing I have uh, to go by this other than Again, the, the the story does have a lot of unknowns, and that's fine. You know, this isn't a story where they're gonna you know uncover an ancient Necronomicon book that they're going to read and it's going to magically explain what's going on. And it's it's good that it doesn't do that because it would be a different type of story. Um, but that that's just uh, you know setting wise. Aside from being a really cool. Uh, when I say cool, it's obviously not cool because it's in the desert. But you know this this desert, uh, mountainous location, it still gives me that sense of imagination of driving through the desert, seeing the mountains, what could happen out there, you know, cults, criminals, mines, a lot of history, whatever. And in this case, uh, people trapped in the mountains trying to escape tentacle monsters. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you, Nick. Um, I think the... Again, the locale is just absolutely fantastic. Fast-paced. 
Um, I love the locale that I think that's one of the biggest pluses for me. Um, I think the desert is an untapped resources for horror and uh, Cthulhu uh, cosmic monsters. Um, I think it's a great read. Um, I've read it a couple times already in, in preparation for this uh, podcast. And I'm sure that I will read it again uh, in the future. This is one of those stories that I know I'll come back to again and again. How about you, Nick? It's it's a fun story. It's adventurous. It's exciting. It's nice to read a Lovecraft derivative work that's, again, not doom and gloom detective work. I'm in the Prohibition era being a detective. Oh, my God, there's a giant, you know, monster coming up from the ocean. Uh, it's, it's nice when things are just kind of exciting and fun to read. It's um, when we were doing the Nick Mamatos interview uh, earlier this year, you know, we'd read Sabbath, which is not a normal Nick Mamatos book. It was, you know, Highlander. <laughs> Let's just be honest. It's Highlander. Sometimes you just need to read Highlander. In this <laughs> case, sometimes you just need to read Fast and Furious. And and that's what this is, uh, our Trimmers. Fast and the Furious meets Trimmers. And it delivers. Uh, it delivers exactly that. And it's it's just a fun read. It's got a little bit of horror. It's got a little bit of action. It's uh, it's exciting. I love the Vegas vibes. I love the, more importantly, the, the desert vibes. It stirs the imagination of what goes out there. Um, and again, it, as a novella, it, it the pages turn as quick as the cars in them. It is super fast. Very enjoyable. Well, on that note, uh, on that uh, speedy note, we're going to go ahead and uh, turn over to upcoming events. Again, a huge thank you to Philippe Gerber for composing the song Azathoth, specifically for HP Lovecast podcast. We really love the composition, and we hope that you'll enjoy listening to the entire song at the end of this podcast and seeing its uh, peppering appearances on subsequent episodes. We'll include a link to his band camp in the show notes, so do check out his work. In terms of upcoming events, first for Scholars from the Edge of Time, uh, we'll have a new episode uh, streaming Thursday, January 28th at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 6 p.m. Pacific. Our guest will be writer S. Alessandro Martinez, who has a debut novel, Helminth, that is coming out later this month. If you don't catch us live, no problem. That episode will be available uh, afterwards for download. For HP Lovecast Presents Fragments, we'll be actually interviewing Jason Parent about this novella, as well as exploring a few of his other publications. That interview will go up Sunday, January 17th. Uh, For the next episode of HP Lovecast Proper, episode 36, we'll be discussing short stories from Cthulhu Deep Down Under, volume 2, a collection edited by Steve Proposh, Christopher Sequera, and Bryce Stevens, published by IFWG Publishing International and part of a dark face title, these stories feature an assortment of the finest Australian dark fiction from authors such as Lee Murray, Robert Hood, Sylvia Brown, and Kristen McDermott. That episode should post Sunday, February 7th. And HP Lovecast is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com. And of course, you can always email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books we have either edited or contributed to with individual essay chapters. As always, thank you for listening.